This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, today I have the pleasure with uh, speaking with Eric Moran from the University of Haifa in Israel. Hello, Eric. Uh, we'll be talking about his book, Kingship and Polity on the Himalayan Borderland, Rajput Identity During the Early Colonial Encounter. Uh, so I found this quite a fascinating book, uh, not uh, especially in that kingship is, has, has been an academic interest of mine as well. Do you maybe want to tell us a little bit about how you got into this project? Well, sure. Thanks. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be on the podcast uh, series now, um, which I've been following and admiring. Um, and the book basically started out, um, has to begin to starting points. The first is when I discovered history was quite a fascinating uh, topic, which would be uh, junior high school. And um, the second would have been after the kind of classic uh, course of uh, Israelis these days, which is after compulsory military service, you take a backpack and you go to India. And that's where I fell in love with India and specifically with the Himalayan tradition of the Himalayas. And uh, Traveling around, I tried try to understand more of the history of the place, the history of India, and the history of the little kingdoms and valleys and these gorgeous sites that I was uh, witnessing. And uh, soon enough, I started collecting local histories, listening to these local oral epics, and turned this into, uh, I guess, an academic career. Um, so as this developed, basically, what, what intrigued me really was the gap between what I was reading, and specifically in classical kind of uh, accounts, the, the most uh, comprehensive history of the area to date, as uh, the history of the Punjab Hill States, which is what the area used to be called, or the Kohistani Punjab. And this was written in 1933, uh, primarily by uh, colonial-era researchers. And as I was saying, so this really gives you a wonderful political history, but... It's also very thoroughly focused on a Sanskritic or antiquarian uh, reading of the past, as used to be the case uh, around the heyday of uh, British imperialism. So between this and between the kind of rituals and uh, variety and richness of uh, the culture that I was encountering, it was an enormous gap. And I tried to basically understand what that was, and that's how I ended up writing a doctorate on the topic, which ultimately developed into this book. Well, there's certainly, uh, as evidenced by your research, there certainly is a gap to be filled, or that has been filled by, by your study of um, kingship in this region. Now, maybe that's a good foyer to, to tell our audience a little bit about the data that you use. And, and um, I mean, it's, ev- it's evident to you, but it may not be evident to them in terms of the methodology and how the kinds of data that you're using is very different from the data used for the colonial production of uh, history of this region? Um, Yes, so on that point, I actually use, well, I've been traveling in the area for almost actually more than 20 years now. And by traveling, I mean spending also very long periods of time uh, in select locations. And uh, during that period, I've been collecting both, uh, as I said, collecting and recording uh, local histories, observing rituals connected with kinship and or just general uh, community rituals, 
and of course the primary sources of history which are um, texts and that is uh, uh, texts written around the late 19th and early 20th century um, by local lineages so these are like little kingdom chronicles basically modern era Vomshtavalis something that looked like uh, Tawarikhs many other times and um, these are complemented by of course archival work so everything that the British colonial officers who, would, uh, who were posted to the region or had to communicate with these local kingdoms was written down and, of course, uh, sent to, from the hills to Delhi and from there to Calcutta and from there to London. And all of these archives and uh, this paper trail, basically, is very rich uh, in details that are hard to find in uh, other histories, especially when it comes to the kind of uh, very, I'd say, slightly glorific or glorifying accounts that were produced um, during the heyday of the British Empire, where every ruler is uh, basically um, uh, portrays a virile, Sanskritic kshatriya, untouched, uh, supposedly isolated uh, from all the events in the subcontinent, despite uh, acknowledgement as part of the Mughal Empire, for example, in the early modern era. So the question was, how did we reach this idea of the local kings as being these antiquated, um, almost like living in a bubble specimens of a glorious past, whereas the paper trail, the evidences of various sorts show there was a very uh, deep kind of enmeshment of local rulers and what was going on in the subcontinent at large. There seems to be, it seems that you're referring to this, this uh, tension or dichotomy between imagined kingship and actual kingship, between how kings existed in the cultural imaginaire and how they were idealized versus what people were actually doing on the ground to secure and transform power. There seems to be a tension between this, this glorified chatri of the sort of Sanskrit cultural imagination and what people were actually doing uh, in the offices. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where the question comes in of, you know, to what extent is this depiction real? or to say, let's say, empirically grounded in things that had happened. And to what extent did it, and, and if not, sorry, then how did it come to be? And this uh, is where the work becomes, I think, a little more interesting to me as a historian, in the sense that it helps us reflect about the production of knowledge about India, or what has been called colonial knowledge. And what we find is that rather than, you know, this uh, patriarchal order where you have just... Um, male warrior kings supposedly fending off all uh, foreign influence for two or three millennia, uh, you actually have a really interesting setup of royal families where women take a very strong part in administration and uh, especially as regents for their sons. And this, the book actually shows how this goes on prior to the encounter with the British, that is in the late latter half of the 18th century and leading up into um, uh, the early colonial encounters. So the, the British conquer the hills during the Anglo-Gorka War. That's 1814 to 1816, when uh, the Nepalese or the Gorka, uh, the Gorka Shah rulers of Nepal have expanded uh, their domain from the Western Hills to Kathmandu and all over the Himalayan mountains um, into Kangra. Uh, Kangra is the district in the heart of Himachal Pradesh today. Um, so you have this expansion of an, uh, if you like, an autochthonous or indigenous power from the hills that is fenced in by the British. And that is what brings these early contacts between the East India Company then and the local rulers. And what we find in the archives is these negotiations that show that some of the people involved in, the, in the deciding the fate of local lineages that were formerly oppressed by the Gorkhas are actually regent queens who substitute for their uh, husbands and who go into all kinds of devices and ideas to safeguard their role. Um, and this touches, if, if I may continue just a little bit, on a very important topic of, that also ties into religion, which is the notion of sati. So you can't really discuss uh, uh, women in pre-colonial or in India in general these days without touching on sati, especially under the British. Um, happy to elaborate on that if you think that's uh, of relevance to our uh, listeners. 
It's uh, of absolute relevance to our listeners, your third chapter, I believe, on Satya and Sovereignty. Um, before we dive squarely into that, we'll definitely unpack that. Um, let's tease out a bit more this, uh, the, the importance of this contribution that you're making in a scholarship. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, um, a, key, um, a key point you're making is that um, women played a huge role in this in the securing and transfer of power and kingships in 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 these himalayan kingdoms correct yes very much so so and, and so maybe before we even dive squarely into the sati maybe you could um tease that out a bit more and talk about maybe some examples to share with the audience to have that sink in because i think that's that's such a crucial point um right really changes how we understand uh, how royal power worked in subcontinent. So let's uh, let's take for example the the greatest warrior king, or the one who's been idealized as the greatest of warriors in these uh, western uh, pahari or mountain kingdoms, um, Sansar Chandkatoch, who is also on the cover of the book. Um, so he's this great warrior. Uh, we find actually uh, gains power over his homeland by uh, ousting. Um, his rivals. So there's a rival branch of the family. He executes their 11, uh, these 11 princes, all brothers, and they have a sister who is still around. And her name is Nagardevi Hamshira Katochi. And in order to get rid of her, uh, Sansanchan tries to arrange a marriage to her of this uh, uh, contender, if you like, to a neighboring kingdom, the kingdom of Bilaspur. And the marriage is fine, and he thinks he manages to get rid of competition, but uh, unfortunately for him, the husband dies. Uh, he dies, and there's a baby boy uh, in the kingdom, and now uh, Nagardev is actually a regent queen. And we see her um, contracting alliances with the last Mughal governor, for example, in the hills, uh, charging her cousin's uh, armies, and basically giving a fight for roughly two decades before she, uh, she finally dies away and Sansachan can rise to greatness. So these things, of course, are not written in most accounts, but we can see them in, we see glimpses in travelers' accounts, and if we read closely the archives, then we can actually uh, deduce from the actions that came before or after these rulers how central, uh, uh, I feel like, uh, women power was among these elites. And so, so yeah, sure. I mean, you can, uh, if you if you'd like, you can certainly dive into um, your 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 um, content on sati, if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Well, then, so when do we hear about women in these contexts? Is in obviously mostly in the studies of sati, and rightly so because we know that for the British, this was a great uh, opportunity to you know, to complain about the civilizing mission, um, this white man's burden of having to uh, shoulder uh, the pain of educating the Indians, supposedly, not to kill their wives, right? This is the kind of stereotypical uh, depiction that was used to justify imperialism control over India. Um, however, again, if we look closely into the archives, then we see instances where some of these queens realizing that the British officers in front of them are very concerned with sati, will use, um, will use it as a threat to advance their own political gains. Now, what do I mean by this? Take, for example, the kingdom of Rampur Bashar, which is uh, near the Tibetan border today in the areas between Shimla and Kinar, basically, of uh, Himachal Pradesh. Um, there we know that, the, again, we have a situation where the king is dead, he leaves a child, and he leaves uh, two queens. One is the mother of the child. The other is uh, the widow of the earlier king. Okay. Um, and they both want to gain power. Now, they get into an argument between them. And the British officers, this is how we know this, because they report back about uh, this escalating conflict between the two uh, royal figures. Um, basically, uh, cite one of the, the young mother's uh, claims that, look, this elder queen has no say in government. Why? Because she failed 
to become sati, as every woman of rank does when her husband expires, right? So we see that we have uh, changes in the way these supposedly religious practices are being used to justify uh, uh, grab-holding, basically grabbing, grabbing power. Um, another example that I can think of is, of course, uh, very famous Rani from Sirmor. And in this case, again, we have Rani who uses the notion of uh, the idea of, I want to uh, terminate uh, my life, or let's say I want to become sati, and that is a very vague kind of definition for us. Whereas, in fact, this is often used to make the other side, that is the uh, colonial power, um, a little more anxious, I would say, about, uh, about losing control over the situation, trying to civilize, yes, in quotation marks, uh, the situation they have under their hands. And in the process, actually, these leading female figures managed to entrench their power. So by the time we reach the 1840s, uh, sati is used to gain extra money for pensions. Okay, there's a, a Raja dies, and his widows will simply come and say, well, you know, we, we want to go with him on the funeral pyre, and then they, they would have a negotiation, and ultimately they would say, okay, we will add so-and-so rupees for your uh, maintenance, please do not do this. So it's kind of a very uh, interesting religious rite that turns into a tool for political power. Now, um, what... Uh, there's, there's so many directions. What most surprised you about your research? Like, what really struck you, you yourself, as you were writing this book? What, what were you very surprised to stumble upon? It's um, a good question. It surprises on every every corner, really. Um, I think what really surprised me was to see just uh, two two main things I can think of. One is just how extremely savvy and smart all of these uh, local players were. So the kings, you know, they start off, the, the, or the ruling elite of the hills, they start off deeply enmeshed in what's going on in the Sikh Punjab, um, in uh, what is today Uttar Pradesh. They've got all these links happening all over the place, all kinds of political players, economy, um, traders passing through their uh, uh, hill kingdoms, raising taxes, lowering taxes, and for them, the British are just another kind of image, right? They're just like the Mughals again. There's another superpower coming around. Let's see what we can sell to them as an image to maintain our hold over power because they're obviously, they're no match for the technological superiority and, you know, just the, econ the economic power that the British are bringing with them. But at the same time, they are super clever in, I wouldn't just say manipulating, but giving giving the right impression or uh, managing and being diplomatic about the way they are going to, uh, you know, to have that, to earn the world famous title of rulers from time immemorial. So really all players are super witty and clever in uh, doing that. So I really enjoyed reading that in numerous instances. And I think the book has quite a lot of examples of that. And the second was the notion of the borders. When I started realizing to what extent, because what we look at, you know, the Himalayas are a huge chunk of territory and you've got the middle hills and you've got the higher hills connecting to the Tibetan plateau. And then you've got this lower borderland, what in Nepal is called Tarai and here is called the Shivalik Hills. Um, it's basically the hills that connect from the middle Himalayas down to uh, the great Indian plains. And so it's a really interesting kind of uh, relationship between the civilizational center of Sanskritic culture and later on uh, Indo-Islamic culture, um, and what goes on in the hills themselves, where they have their own local cults that are uh, centered on uh, Shaiva and Shakta worship, and from the early modern era, a stronger emphasis on uh, Vaishnava worship, both through Bhakti lineages. Um, and I love the way these interact and how much the border actually does impact uh, the kind of political and religious cultures that you find. For example, I mentioned that 1815 or 14 to 16 is a cutoff point where the British first entered the Himalayas. But what I didn't mention was that they only reach as far as the Sutlej River. So 1809 marks this year where they divide the Punjab between themselves and Maharaja Ranjit Singh of the Punjab in Lahore. And this cuts through the Himalayas as well. 
So what you have is basically the Sutlej River today in the middle of Himachal Pradesh as an imperial frontier. And this has amazing consequences for some of the kingdoms. So kingdoms that are to the um, true right or to the north of the river are under the authority of Lahore, and those uh, south of it are under the authority of Calcutta. And one of the kingdoms in the book, which focuses on three central kingdoms or three interrelated families of Kangra, Bilaspur, and Sirmar, that's from northwest to southeast. So the middle kingdom here, Bilaspur, is actually divided in two. So you find all of a sudden that this uh, political frontier, this imperial frontier, has cut, cut one of these kingdoms into two separate uh, territories that are still under the authority of one ruling king. And this has wonderful and often disastrous uh, consequences, as I show in the final chapters of the book. So the last two chapters actually analyze what kind of consequences border making has for uh, the construction of modern kingship in Himachal. So you can't leave us on the cliffhanger of alluding to these consequences without now telling us about <laughs> these consequences. But let me share one, two thoughts that came to mind as you were, uh, as you were talking about your, your work. The first thought, um, this is the second thought, but I'll share it in reverse order. The second thought is that, you know, um, in many ways, I really envy folks who study South Asia and they have a period where they actually have dates <laughs> and events. Whereas, you know, the Devi Mahatmya may or may not have been finalized sometime during the Gupta era. <laughs> As opposed to 18X, this happened over this bridge. And so, um, uh, I envy that in a sense, but also uh, the questions that I asked are more ide ideological, uh, narratological, and it's really the, the how things were imagined that I'm interested in, how, how folks imagine uh -huh. um, the, the, the Devi or the ideal king. Um, I don't have the luxury of, of, of contrasting how they were imagined with how they were, because <laughs> we have no idea how they were. Uh, <laughs> the second thought that came to mind quite some time ago, and I'll share it now because you're about to, to, to delve into the intrigue, is that you're really, um, you're documenting an early, early uh, 19th century Himalayan Game of Thrones, really. <laughs> 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 this is all about it doesn't matter who has the dragons you can outsmart them <laughs> absolutely yes in many ways it is <laughs> so tell us about tell us tell us about the dire consequences that you document in the last two chapters so okay so i'll tell you about the consequences and then i'll try to answer your uh question about the imagination of how these kings were thought of or depicted um, but the Game of Thrones, so I'll, I'm back to the cliffhanger, right? To the, the Kingdom of Bilaspur in uh, 1823. And now you've got these fantastic accounts, which actually also answers your first question. Um, there's a late 19th century account uh, written in Braj, which unfortunately I did not have access to, to the actual account. Um, but I did have a summary of it. And that, along with the archival records, gives a pretty clear image of uh, this notorious ruler called Karakchand. So I call him notorious because that's what the British sources and virtually all other local histories that uh, toe the line of imperial discourse uh, describe him as. And according to this late 19th century uh, history, he is born under an inauspicious sign. And so he's sent off uh, away from the kingdom uh, to avert disaster. He's meant to be raised in a village at the very border of the kingdom. Um, until the age of 12. But his father, of course, can't help himself. And at the age of when the child is 11, he sends for him. Uh, the child arrives and immediately, more or less, the father dies. And so we have now an adolescent on the throne. And uh, the, he's, you know, he stays put for three years under a council of elders. But after that, he just, uh, that's where we start going games to the thrones, basically. So we execute, he executes uh, one of his... Uh, um, ministers, um, you know, exiles the others and starts amusing himself because he's got all this power. He's been raised at the edge of the kingdom. He has no idea what he's doing. And there's nobody so, really looking at what so he's doing. Joffrey's on the throne at this point. You're saying... <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I have, I have a disclaimer. I don't really watch Games of Thrones, but, uh, but I have a fair idea since uh, it's quite the buzz. So, yes. <laughs> Um, this is the character, um, and what he does at this point is 
he realizes he has elephants, for example, and he can just, you know, go on top of an elephant into the bazaar where his ancestors had carefully created a, you know, thriving marketplace right at this nodal point that connects hills and mountains from various directions and tramples his subjects. Basically, it enjoys sadistically seeing them die as he uh, goes over them with his elephants. Um, very fast, his uh, relatives become very, very uh, furious, but they can't do anything because he's protected. And who is he protected by? And this is the beauty of the situation and why the border is so important. He's protected by both the British and the Sikhs. So Lahore doesn't want to interfere because they don't want to have any problems with the East India Company, and they're busy conquering Kashmir and other areas at the same time. And the British have the same issues. They don't want to uh, get involved in what is to them a very minor kingdom, ultimately. And so, uh, you know, incur the wrath of their neighbors uh, from the Punjab. The, we have to remember Lahore is a serious uh, threat in many ways to the British at this uh, late point of uh, the East India Company's expansion. So instead, in this kind of nether zone, you have a situation where this uh, Jeffrey or Godfrey, what's the name of the king again? I forget. The game is against the Game his, of Thrones guy. So his name is Joffrey, and there's there are many things you could say about his story um, that are, are specific to this world, but but the general theme or, or archetype, if you will, of um, a sadistic, impetuous child uh, with uh, who 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 really um, enjoys watching folks suffer in in power. Uh, there's some, yes, there's, there's definitely, you don't need to have a, a great imagination to, to see the analog here. So yeah, Joffrey's on the throne. <laughs> yes. So, so Joffrey or Karak Chan is just, you know, he has a, a wonderful time for quite a long uh, period, despite numerous attempts by his relatives in, in collusion with, or in, you know, with the support of uh, British personnel on the frontier to kind of avert this disaster. Um, but everybody is minded to everybody. I mean, all the superior powers avoid getting involved in what's happening in the kingdom. And this actually gives this Karakchan a very strong um, incentive to persist in his, you know, misdemeanors, or you could even say murders, um, because there's nobody watching him. And uh, there's all kinds of examples, like uh, the Haridwar Fair, right? The, the Mela in Haridwar, where all local rulers would arrive and would be asked to deposit their um, guns, and they would usually adopt uh, uniforms along, you know, kind of set types of uniforms. And instead, when we hear about Karakchan's entourage, they're basically, you know, parading their guns, shooting them all over the place. They're all dressed in different types of robes and insignia. So, uh, and what this kind of hints at, along with uh, the other evidences, is that Karakchan is not only an impetuous, you know, sadistic, puerile um, ruler, but he is also very cleverly exploiting the fact that he's on the frontier in this kind of gray area that nobody wants to deal with, neither Lahore nor Kolkata. And he becomes a patron for all these um, uh, itinerary or um, mobile groups uh, in the subcontinent. I'm thinking particularly particularly about Rohila or Patan, uh, um, well, what, what are called mercenaries in colonial sources, but basically these are uh, remnants of the Afghan uh, empire of the late 18th century that uh, Jans Gomans has written about who used to roam around the subcontinent. And they're also uh, not dissimilar to the kind of groups that William Pinch had written about, the warrior ascetics. Um, so you have all kinds of uh, itinerant, not sedentarized yet groups, right? Because the goal of the East India Company and the British Empire in general was to uh, be able to tax its subjects. And when you have people who are traveling all over the world and selling their force of arms, as was the case in a lot of 18th century India, that does not, uh, or at least in this part of India, um, that does not really fit well with the grand designs of the British. So what Karakchan does, what this local king does, is exploit this position to become the grand patron of all these uh, vagabond groups, if you like. And that makes him actually quite inventive and open, I think, to innovation. So rather than uh, 
kind of Sanskritic, amazing, uh, just universal monarchs, you know, these kind of chakravartins that uh, we're used to think about when people talk about local kings uh, in this part of uh, India. What you find is somebody who is very dynamically responding to the uh, contingencies of being, if you like, thrown into the imperial borderland. So that's kind of the the fourth and fifth chapters of the book look into that kind of dynamic and uh, the gaps between how it's been, how it's come to be described in histories and what it actually did look like. Well, that, that tension in itself is fascinating to me. The tension between um, the the pragmatic, very messy, gory, um, um, uh, the, the act of rulership and, and all that it entails, and even the very bloodshed. Um, that's required for it and then the ways in which we idealize and even to this day the ways in which we idealize rulers and their offices yeah and so um this is what fascinates me the more the most is that when i study ancient sanskrit texts about kingship for example Mm -hmm. i'm not necessarily uh gaining a window into how kings were i'm gaining a window into how people imagined and or hoped and or idealized how kings were, right? So whether or not kings ever were that way, certainly there were people on, on the, in, in South Asia who um, idealized them in that way. And there's, there's this tension between how, how, we, how we think of these exalted figures and then, then how they actually function, which is why I sort of joke about this, this, this colonial era Game of Thrones, because it, it seems to me that, that, in that sort of environment, without that skill set, you wouldn't last very long, would you? <laughs> Probably not, no. And, um, and I think you're right. I mean, not only would you not last very long, but you would also need the support of your mother and your sisters, it turns out. Um, because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these kings, they're not really uh, these solo players. You know, this is not, if I may use another Hollywood... Uh, kind of reference this is not the jedi knight you know establishing a kingdom this is more of a family that has a lot of interests and a lot of uh vested interests in neighboring families and in neighboring kingdoms um and in order for actually for these kingdoms to succeed what they need is uh a lot of social capital and a lot of well, also political power, the ability to enforce their will on their neighbors. And this, in order to do this successfully, you you really need a strong social base. And it turns out that the marriage, right, the marriage between families that was already important in an era of, let's say, more fluctuating borders before the British had arrived and tried to solidify the notion of this is where the border uh, is drawn between kingdom A and kingdom B, becomes the idea of marriages uh, for getting influence in neighboring courts becomes even more important because with the Brits uh, triumph over this part of the world, uh, there's a really strong tendency to create rigid boundaries that cannot be permeated. That's it. Um, so for example, if we resume the story of Karak Chand, when he ultimately does die after having, you know, uh, one of numerous battles against his uh, uncles in the course of which he sits under a tree in the Maidan and this clearing next to the capital and looks at these various heads that are brought back by his warriors as trophies and hangs them on the trees, a warning to all his enemies. Um, So a couple of weeks after this uh, very gory setting, Karak Chan dies, contracts smallpox and dies. Um, And that's where the real drama begins because it turns out he leaves two widows who are actually uh, sisters um, of let's call him the good king, Fateh Prakash of Sirmor. That is a neighboring king. So the, these are basically two brothers-in-law. And we have two, two widows left uh, actually fighting for uh, the throne of the border kingdom. Um, and the two widows have one problem, which is they never managed to procure a son. And that's where I think all the themes that are developed through the book uh, and the preceding chapters kind of converge and we see how, A, the widows have their own version of the events recorded in the archives, um, and then told again in local histories and local fiction, um, in various idealized and sometimes nationalized readings. 
and we learn of you know the arrival of uh, or the appearance of a baby. So the two widows are there alone. They ask to uh, nominate their own candidate as a successor. They claim they have no child, and then they are taken into the inner hills by their brother, and they emerge nine months later with a baby boy, saying, "Well, you know, here he is. This is our." Uh, the late Raja's uh, successor, and we are now the rightful regents. And this creates a situation that quickly escalates and turns into a marvelous revolution that is really, you know, condensed into a couple of paragraphs in the traditional kind of histories that we find. Um, and that's, that's pretty much the main topic of the fifth chapter, which shows us that really kind of, I think, demonstrates very nicely the gap between the patriarch Raja image that we are fed when we look at classical histories of the region, or as you mentioned, Fourierson's critic sources of the first millennium and so forth, and the very, very messy uh, situation and the true genius of all players in having their way and actually advancing their agendas in what was a very, very uh, complicated time, not, not very dissimilar to these days, I'm afraid. Well, part of what fascinates me also is, is, is are the themes that are uniquely South Asian or, 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 or the, the themes that are, are embedded in um, late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, you know, um, Himalayan kingdoms and the themes that are just so pervasive, right? I mean, there, there are many folks, just to draw the analog, if you ever do uh, watch Game of Thrones, which is neither here nor there, but if you ever do, you'll see a lot of astonishing parallels in terms of uh, the importance of queen regents in terms of um, in terms of you know um, successors and in terms of um, uh, needing to make alliances with neighboring kingdoms and the like and there are many folks who watch uh, or, or they may they may vie for certain characters who are their heroes in the show and and there's this tendency to really evaluate and judge their behavior as if they're living in a modern western democratic society regime and certainly what's not understood is that the the very political um often crude decisions that need to be made are survivals at stake this is a very different world and 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 really it's it's interesting in that the the author of game of thrones was, was steeped in history albeit um western european history but nevertheless it seems that whenever there is um, vying for power it's always a sort of game of thrones there's always a sort of how do we survive because it's not a question of like, how do we eat better or have more power? That question is tied to whether or not we survive, whether or not we're wiped out. So I found it utterly fascinating. So um, your book really sheds light on, on sort of that uh, local Himalayan Indian colonial Game of Thrones. And also sheds light on the agency and the role of women in that era. Um, it's so fascinating that we have records to corroborate what you're saying and it really gives us pause to think that what other epochs of history uh may women have played such a crucial role but we have no records thereof absolutely i mean there has been interesting work done on this in andhra pradesh for example cynthia talbot has shown a lot from the medieval area uh era sorry of uh, you know the, the role of women and of course indrani chatterjee has been working on this um so there's, there's, the evidence is there, but it does have to be very carefully weighed before we can make any uh, judgments, you know, before, before we pass judgment and actually say, okay, this particular regent or this particular person was uh, super powerful because of A, B, and C. Um, but the evidence is there. It just has to be looked for. And what is really uh, weighing further on this evidence, what is really preventing us from often assessing it properly is that a lot of this raw data that's in the archives, that's in the histories, that's hiding in poems, if you like, or in oral traditions, a lot of this evidence is, has been used to construct these modern ideas of India, right? Colonial knowledge. This is how our modern knowledge about India uh, came to be. So you really have this dynamic reflexive process wherein the evidence itself is shaping the way that reports about the evidence are are uh, are written so that sadistic uh, raja that we mentioned right that uh, uh the terrible notorious ruler becomes the prototype for the oriental despot 
this is, these are themes, you know, that are not unique necessarily to uh, the book itself. They've been written about wonderfully by Norbert Peabody, for example, and looking at Kota in Rajasthan. But what is interesting is how these things actually, once you go deeper, deeper, like really dig into these, uh, the interconnections between the ruling families, between the politics of the region, between the uh, political boundaries, the imperial boundaries, you have this setting where, yes, you were mentioning the universal impulses, right, of violence, of control, of protecting yourself, protecting your family. They're all there, but they get a really uniquely kind of South Asian, and I would also say a uniquely Himalayan flavor um, once we uh, address just how, uh, you know, the particular ridge or the particular history of the family had influenced the actor's decisions. So, yes, that's the. I completely agree with you in terms of agency can be retrieved. It just needs a lot of, a lot of work. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. One question I have that's, it's quite ancillary to, to your research, but it's just a curiosity of mine. This, uh, this sadistic boy King, uh, he was mm-hmm. uh, the, the fact that he was sent away due to ill omens and then um, was returned. Uh, is your sense that that was a historical reality or is that just part of a, a, a legend? I, I hesitate. It does sound too much like a fairy tale, right? Well, the the, the reason I ask is because, um, irrespective of what we think of the agency of omens, certainly in in South Asia, uh, omens have agency, and 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 one of the things I'm studying now is um, omenology and Jyoti Shastra, and. Okay. ill omens or fortuitous omens around birth. So whether or not he was actually sent away, certainly there would have been, for example, a chart cast upon his birth. And certainly someone would have pronounced for good or ill what they saw. And so I realize this is very ancillary to research, but it fascinates me. Um, do you have a sense of, of that situation? or what, Was it like, was there an incident or was it like, uh, do you know why mm-hmm. he was sent away? Wait, I don't have the actual prognostications that were made at birth. We don't, those aren't uh, accessible to me, but A, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, as you know, the evidence, I start the book with an oral epic uh, in which we have a battle between three kingdoms, which actually gives us the background for who are these uh, main political entities we're looking at. And over there, for example, uh, nothing is done without consulting with the, the geotishes. Right, the Jyotisha uh, has to be uh, uh, consulted. You're pitching camps. You're setting off. You have to choose a leader for the expedition. Who's going to be the commanding uh, officer? All that is both politics, but also very much determined by omens. Is it auspicious? Is it inauspicious? And how do we do that? So yes, I I would definitely agree. Um, I began by saying, well, you know, it sounds too much like a fairy tale, but at the same time, both in India and South Asia and in the West and elsewhere, you know, people listen to omens, people have premonitions, people are afraid of certain um, signs that they perceive. So I wouldn't, I would definitely not just, you know, uh, cast that off and say, no, that's not historical. I think it happened. I cannot tell you what exactly happened in that sense. But again, when this child who was removed and so forth dies, his widows, you know, they come up with their own narrative where they say, you know, he was killed by black magic ask so and so he'll tell you we know this was done so these are very there is a whole world there of you know sorcery omens and you know uh prognostications that is insinuated at but does not always enter into the uh kind of standard if you like consensual account that emerged with the triumph of colonial knowledge so the book very much tries to show this to the extent that's possible the, the fact that it includes the, the narrative where um, this inauspicious uh, son is sent away and then his very return, um, if I'm not mistaken, is his his father passes shortly after he's returned to the throne, correct? Yeah, that's returned right. Yeah. Returned to the court. So it's really fascinating. And this is a theme that pervades um, a number of narratives. Uh, but the, but what I would like to explore at some point more formally is, is not necessarily the mechanics of the omenology. That's fascinating in and of itself, but it's, it's the psychology 
of factoring in ominology into your very pragmatic decisions because that that's pervasive to this very day it's not such that there are superstitious pre-moderns and then you know um tech gurus in india it is that the very same people whose left (laughs) brains work very very well are the very same people who can switch and then um give credence to ominology or judicia so there's something very fascinating about the psychology that i'd love to explore i realize it's obviously very ancillary to your study but i I just found it um so crucial to this to this young joffrey's biography if you will (laughs) yes it's it's uh, you know it's wonderfully edible no no doubt (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes indeed so wanted to tell us um is there anything else you wanted to touch on with with the work is there anything else um, to find? what i was gonna what i uh, almost always end with is by asking what you're working on now or what what's the next project but but before i do so let me just make sure that we covered what you wanted to or whether any other points or, 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 or intrigues that you wanted to raise um not a lot of intrigues i might i might want i'll just highlight what i think you know what this book has come to what I hope to achieve with this book is really expand the conversation that we've had between historians of South Asia and specialists of the Himalayas. This is primarily because since more or less uh, 1940, we've had very few historians, really, you can count them, you know, on two hands, maybe, dealing with uh, the Himalayas outside of Nepal. And the entire Himalayan chain has been primarily uh, geared towards anthropologists. Um, so I think there's a lot that historians can learn from all this anthropological literature and vice versa. So I'm really hoping that this helps kind of bridge these, uh, these gaps. That's kind of my main, if you like, uh, incentive in terms of somebody. My heart is, is in the Himalayas, so uh, I hope that achieves that. The rest, the rest can be read. Well, it's obvious that your work is powered by your passion, which is, uh, in my view, as it should be, because it was your interest. The interest came first, and then the um, the academic career followed the interest. Mm-hmm. So, in my view, that that lends to that will necessarily lend to some sort of lead to some sort of fulfillment. It was the same with me in that I actually left my undergrad. I worked in the private sector for a while, and my goal was to work my way up at this company, and you know long story uh-huh. yada 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 i discovered uh, yeah. intro to hindu studies the day it started at the university of toronto and um took severance went back <laughs> finished my 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 undergrad master's doctorate and here we are and <laughs> so uh-huh. oh i mean to say is that the interest is what uh, I was originally studying something that I wasn't nearly as interested in and I wasn't able to bring it to fruition. And I realized that if I'm not interested in it, it really, it, uh, I'm not going to do it. So you're obviously yeah. interested in the area and so your, your, your passion is evident. So that's great. So uh, along those lines, what's your next area? Uh-huh. of research? Um, So my next area of research. Um, so I'm trying to keep with my passions as you advise, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, assuming each life is lived only once, but we never really know. So, and, and either, um, way, either way, your passion may be a samskara from before. So, <laughs> exactly. Of how many lives we have, the, the, the vasanas must be exhausted, no? <laughs> so what, what's next? <laughs> so, the vasanas are leading me to two things. One is to continue working on local kings, but these are written projects. And the second is I'm increasingly more interested in rituals and in the use of film for uh, recording, analyzing, and you know, mediating these kind of uh, uh, often inexplicable actions. So I'd uh, recently been working on a film from the Kulu, on a, on a ritual from the Kulu Valley that I'd uh, uh, filmed and uh, co-created a documentary with uh, Nadav Harel who has created quite a few documentaries on often controversial subjects. And this one concerns the human sacrifice. And we are now uh, delving into another project that is uh, looking into, um, and that's interesting, you know, what you mentioned earlier kind of ties into the psychological factors behind the experience of uh, deities and specifically goddesses in, uh, in village Himachal, if you like. 
uh, and the vision of goddesses and dreams and the way that different ways they manifest and the way that people um, would communicate with a goddess, be it through exorcisms and community rituals or um, individually as a means for, you know, resolving personal or familial uh, conflicts. So we're doing this both in film, which I think is under, uh, it's, it's gaining recognition, but in this day and age, I think really bringing things uh, to the public, not only in written form, uh, is really helpful and kind of helps. There's a lot you can do with film that you can't do with writing and vice versa. So what I do is we co-create the films and then uh, I also write academically about the various rituals. So this is the, the projects I've been busy with these days. It goes without saying that, um, well, two things. One, that any follow-up to what you just said would be an interview by itself. <laughs> if I were to respond to anything you just said, we would have a second interview starting now. And so I will dovetail that into the second point, which is you, you must uh, return to the program uh, when, you, uh, when you've completed one of these other projects, because clearly it would, it would, it would be most fascinating in its content. And it would also partake in your, your MO of, of bridging academy and, and public awareness, which is the very uh, nature of this podcast. Lovely. Would love to. Thank you. Okay. So um, somehow I feel like we've ended this interview on a mammoth cliffhanger. <laughs> having just, having just peeked into the world of human sacrifice and visions of, of the great goddess uh, <laughs> in terms of part of a South Asian um, uh, unique omenological psychology. Having just touched on that, <laughs> we will end this interview. <laughs> um, well, thanks a lot for having me. It, it was wonderful. I hope, uh, hope this was clear enough, but if not, you know, it's all in print. I uh, know it's, it's, yeah. listen, if I can keep up with it, I'm sure they can too. So we're good. <laughs> so, right. so, uh, for all of you listening out there, we have been talking to Dr. Eric Moran, who is at the University of Haifa in Israel, on his recent publication, Kingship and Polity, on the Himalayan borderland, borderland pardon me. The, the subtitle is Rajput Identity During the Early Colonial Era. I would gloss that Game of Thrones during the early colonial era. Um, <laughs> In any case, for those of you out there, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and until next time, keep reading. Thank you. <laughs>